Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Julie Bishop, sports medicine and shoulder surgeon at The Ohio State University. Dr. Bishop was the senior author of the editorial commentary titled, Lower Return to Play After Failed Prior Instability Surgery, Should the Open Ladder J Be the Gold Standard for Anterior Shoulder Instability, which is published in the August 2021 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Bishop, and thank you for joining me. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we appreciate your time and all these controversial anterior instability topics. I know a lot of us are, uh, are really interested in, to hear uh, what you have to say. So to update the listeners, the editorial commentary we'll be discussing today was in relation to an article from Dublin, Ireland by Dr. Mullet that was the senior surgeon uh, titled Open Ladder J Procedure in Competitive Athletes Following Failed Prior Instability Surgery Results in Lower Return to Play Rates. So, Dr. Bishop, can you give us a brief review and kind of your thoughts and, and a review of your commentary uh, regarding this paper I just mentioned? Sure. Um, I think it was a really great paper, um, and uh, we were really interested in reading it, so we were excited to be asked to, to comment. Um, and it's a retrospective review of 200 patients on the outcomes following the open ladder J in athletes who had primary instability and recurrent instability and those who had a latter day after a prior failed instability surgery. And what they found is that a mean of 38 months follow-up, there was no significant difference in any of the clinical outcome scores between the groups. However, they found that only 64% of the patients who had prior instability surgery were able to return to play, and this is versus 88 and 91% in the other group, and only 56% were able to return to play at the same or higher level of play. And this is compared to, um, to 66 and 78% um, for the primary and recurrent instability uh, group. Um, they did show the latter day complication uh, was about 4 to 6%. Um, and so, you know, overall, um, I think that the reasons why people fail to return to play after a prior instability surgery are really multifactorial. And our feeling was one could take a snapshot of this and think to themselves, oh, well, this means that we should always do a ladder J for those with primary or recurrent instability because their return to play is higher um, and they return at a better and higher level of play. But I think you need to be careful drawing that conclusion because there are so many factors that go into effect when someone has a prior failed instability surgery. So I think it's very compelling data and it's something to really think about, to talk about with the athlete. But at the end of the day, I think that you need to take all the data out there, take the athlete, take their history, and make a unique decision for, um, for every athlete um, to determine what is the best uh, surgery for them. Right, that's a great synopsis and great, you know, thought process. And certainly, it's not not easy a lot of times. Can you fill us in regarding your thought process with anterior instability, with on track, off track? You know, when you get CTs and near track patients, and you know, throwers versus contact athletes, and kind of your algorithm and thought with all that. Sure. And so, I will definitely say that, um, kind of as we had um, put in our commentary. I really do treat every single patient individually. So I, I don't have a hard and fast algorithm. And there are some really nice algorithms out there. The guys from Rush put a very nice algorithm about bipolar bone loss. 
And I think it's good to have a kind of general idea in your mind about how you treat these. But, um, but again, I really base it on the patient, their age, their sport, um, their desire to keep playing um, when I'm making the decision. And um, if I am ever worried about any bone loss at all, um, I do get a CT scan. Um, definitely all revisions, I get a CT scan. Um, and I think that, um, you know, even with one, one episode of instability, you know, some of the literature has shown us that there is a small amount of bone loss. So I think to some degree, there's a little bit of bone loss in every instability case. But certainly for revision, I'll get the CT. And then for someone who hasn't had prior surgery, I really take into account the number of dislocations. I think once you start getting up past, you know, two or three dislocations, um, you really need to be looking critically for, for bone loss on both sides. Certainly if the MRI is not uh, conclusive, um, I'll get the CT scan. And I think how I treat the patient um, is again based on their sport. And so I think if you have a patient who is a near track patient, um, but they're a, they've had several dislocations, um, they're a high level athlete in a high level contact sport where they want to continue playing, I probably would be more aggressive with that patient. If I'm treating a thrower, um, I think they're less likely to have bone loss. They're less likely to need a ladder J. Um, I would likely never or really uh, be hesitant to do a remplissage on a thrower. And I think with a lot of the throwers, um, you have to make your decision-making um, based on their laxity. Um, so if you're doing an arthroscopic bank art, if they're pretty ligamentously lax, I think you can take a little bit bigger plication. If they're not, you want to do a little less. Um, because you certainly don't want to over-tighten them. Where if I'm treating a contact athlete, if I'm doing it arthroscopically, so let's say there really is no bone loss, um, I'll be pretty aggressive with my plications. I'll probably put the posterior inferior anchor, take posterior inferior plications um, if I'm doing it arthroscopically. If I do a ladder J, I don't really shift the capsule, um, and I don't really do much with the capsule for, for a ladder J um, for any of the patients that, that I might be doing it in. So I don't know if that answered all of your that's questions. A, there was a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Just your thought process about all of it. And certainly the individualized treatment is, is so helpful. Thank you for that. Can you talk a little bit more about ladder J in your practice and, you know, the, your thoughts about cannulated screws versus solid screws and buttons. And, and you mentioned about the capsule, your thoughts about, you know, some people repairing it with anchors versus to the bone block or, or certainly master surgeons are not repairing it at all. Tell us your, your uh, gestalt about the ladder J. Um, sure. So I would say that one, the ladder J definitely has a pretty substantial role in my practice. I think one, um, I do a lot of revisions. And so it tends to be my go-to surgery for most revisions. Um, and then also I'm in the Midwest. There's a lot of football here and a lot of people who, um, played through a season or two that maybe they should have not played through. So by the time they get to me, they have, you know, pretty significant bone loss at a young age. So I would say it is a good portion of my practice. I do use cannulated screws. Um, I know certainly there are some thoughts um, on using non-cannulated um, to prevent issues with the screws breaking or bending. Thankfully, I haven't had that problem, but I, I certainly think that, um, it'd be helpful to have some, some studies that um, would guide us on that. I think buttons, I haven't used them yet, 
But I think one of the nice things about a button, and I'm kind of waiting to to see how some of the data plays out, is that certainly we are doing ladder J's in people who, who maybe don't have substantial bone loss. And we all know that the bone will resorb um, to meet what is under contact by the humeral head. So if you don't have much bone loss and you have a bigger bone block, you are going to have some coracoid resorption. Our studies show that, our CT studies show that. And I think that the buttons um, will help us avoid the prominent screw head. Um, now, certainly if your screws are well positioned, they are extra articular. They shouldn't cause a problem on the humeral heads, but really nobody wants their x-rays at the combine to show prominent uh, screws because part of your coracoid resorbs. So I think that's something I'm going to watch carefully um, and be open to, uh, to exploring. I do my ladder J's open. And as far as the capsule, you know, when I first started doing ladder J's, I used to put anchors in the glenoids and I would put um, um, three anchors, probably, um, you know, five, three and two o'clock position or something. And I found myself, one, trying to dodge my screws with a drill, sometimes, you know, hitting them, sometimes not. And I found some people got a little tighter. When I really critically looked at my patients, they were losing a little bit more external rotation. And then I started talking to other people who do ladder J's and realized a lot of people had the same experience and had become more minimalist with the capsule. So then I just started repairing the CA ligament to the medial capsule um, and just putting one stitch of the CA and, um, and that being all I did. And I think that... Um, I don't know if that makes a difference versus not even doing anything to it at all, but I definitely become more of a minimalist with the capsule as, as time has gone on. Yeah, that's excellent. I appreciate your explanation. The extra rotation uh, discussion is really helpful. What are your thoughts about, you know, proponents of the Bristow versus ladder shade? Do you think that matters? You know, you mentioned the resorption possibly superiorly. And I know most people are doing ladder shade, but do you have opinions or thoughts about that? And, you know, I have to say, I never saw a Bristow when I was a resident, and I've never thought about doing one, um, maybe because it is an older procedure that's fallen out of favor. But then again, you know, the open bank art, one could say, is an open procedure that's fallen out of favor, but it doesn't mean it's a bad procedure. So certainly I know that there are people that are proponents of it, and it's worked well in their hands. But I worry about not having as much rotational stability because you only have one screw, and I really feel, I know some of the proponents of the Bristow might say, well, um, you know, maybe the, the complication rate is lower, but you're still working around the same structures. Um, you still have to be careful and cognizant of the neurovascular structures. And so to me, it almost seems if you're going to be working in that area, we don't really have data that says the Bristow is better. Um, so I you know, for better or for worse, um, probably we'll stick with a ladder J. But um, certainly somebody with a great amount of experience, you know, what they say is do what you do and do it well. And if it works in your hands, um, then I can't criticize that. Yeah, all excellent points. You mentioned the open bank card. Does that play a role in your practice? It seems like, you know, different doctors uh, really use it a lot or others kind of jump to the ladder J. What are your thoughts about the open bank card in your practice? You know, I do think the open bank art has a role, and I think we're continually trying to decide what that role is. And I think one of the times where the open bank art, um, at least in my practice, I've gone to it, 
where I've had a patient, maybe, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old contact athlete who has maybe one or two dislocations. They desire to continue with a contact sport, and they truly have no bone loss at all, you know, minimal to no hill sacks, maybe because they're a little ligamentously lax, and that's allowed the structural damage to not be as great. Um, I worry that they will fail in arthroscopy. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I have a hard time in like a 15- or 16-year-old doing a latter when there's no bone loss and they have a robust labrum. Um, and so for me, that's probably, been, um, that's probably been the times where I have done it, and I've been, I've been happy with the, out, uh, with the outcome. Now, I really don't know if one could say that that's better than a latter but um, I think for some of those younger patients, um, the latter J sometimes feels a little too aggressive if there isn't the structural damage to support the need for it. Right. Great point. Great point. Can you tell us a little bit about your post-operative protocol and return to sport after latter J and how that differs from your arthroscopic or even uh, open bank cart repair? Um, and so for me, I have them in a sling for six weeks. I do start physical therapy um, two weeks out and have them come out of the sling at six weeks. They progress in somewhat of a similar protocol um, to the arthroscopic bank art. Arthroscopic bank arts, if I feel they're high-risk patients, I probably hold their therapy six weeks because I don't think that they really ever um, get too stiff. But the one thing I'll say is I tend to allow my latter J's to go back sooner than I would an open bank, bank art or an arthroscopic bank art. And I think, you know, the earliest I've ever let someone go back is four and a half months. And I got made brutal fun of um, in a, uh, a, a webinar last year um, for bone loss instability and return to play um, because uh, some of the people on the webinar um, actually held their latter days longer um, and recommended getting a CT scan to make sure the coracoid was healed before you allow the athlete to go back. However, my thought on that is that one, we have some pretty good data that shows um, that there's probably more coracoid non-unions or incomplete unions than we would like, but there's no clinical ramification of that. So to me, a little bit, getting a CT scan to prove healing, what am I going to do if the athlete's doing great, they have full range of motion, full strength, no apprehension, and I find that they have incomplete healing of their coracoid. Am I really going to say we have to go back in and bone graft this to get this coracoid to heal? So maybe I'm burying my head in the sand, but um, I would not advocate for a CT to prove complete healing before I let um, somebody go back because I think you're going to be in a difficult situation um, some of the times. And I think if they have full range of motion, full strength, no apprehension, and, you know, an x-ray that, um, that shows, you know, healing. Obviously, a blatant non-union is a different story. Um, then I'm more apt to let them go back a little sooner um, than, uh, than the arthroscopic bank arts are definitely a minimum of six weeks, I mean, six months. Yeah, that's a great point about the CT. What percentage is enough healing? It's like the fifth metatarsal or even bone grafting of ACL tunnels is... How do we know what's what's enough? So I think that's that's a great point. I think it would be very hard if you have an athlete in front of you 
with a great exam is telling you they feel more stable than they have ever feel. They have confidence in their shoulder. They feel great. And then you say to them, well, your CT shows a little bit of incomplete healing, so I'm going to wait for it give it more time to heal or I'm going to take you back. I think that's a difficult position to be in. So I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, no question. That's a great point. I wanted to ask a little bit about um, some of your pearls for in-season treatment of um, shoulder dislocations. And you mentioned before, you know, once you start getting two or three dislocations and, you know, certainly you've become more aggressive with fixing the first time dislocator. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? in season when mm -hmm. you know they're ready to go back and how many is too many and in that kind of thought process right so i think a little bit of what you have to ask the in-season athlete is first of all you have to think about what their year is whether you know they're high school are they being recruited or if they're in college what kind of eligibility do they have left um then for the high schoolers i mean certainly you need to determine what is their what is their number one sport you know if um if lacrosse is their number one sport and football is just something they're doing to stay in shape, that might change the way I address the in-season in athlete. Versus if you have somebody that's in-season and let's say they're a junior, they're getting recruited um, and they've had one dislocation, but they really want to finish the football season, I am okay with that and kind of set the stage that often the second dislocation will do more damage and if you have a second dislocation in season, that is really your shoulder, I think, declaring itself to you. Um, and so for those people, I'll try to set some parameters so that if it happens again, then we realize, okay, we tried, but it didn't work. Before you need to have an even more invasive surgery, your season's done and we're going to go ahead with surgery. But I think it's reasonable to try to certainly get them through the season, but you wouldn't want them to dislocate every game and, and tell them that that's you know, okay. And for people who make it through the season, we, you know, really set a plan to kind of reevaluate at the end of the season. And based on what their sport is, if, if football is their sport and they made it through the season, but they were, you know, apprehensive, then you set the goal for surgery at the end of the season. And I think as far as return to play in season, um, I think when they have, you know, there's really only one paper um, that looked uh, looked pretty critically at this. And what they found, I think it was a minimum of 10 days, the average contact athlete could get back as long as they had full range of motion, um, full strength, and and no pain with testing. Um, and so that's really the criteria for, for letting them go back in season. That's excellent. Yeah, and sometimes it's a difficult, difficult conversation for sure. And um, the family, you know, it's difficult. Uh, they obviously want to do what's best for their, their kid, but the child obviously typically wants to play. So that's really helpful information. Uh, so what do you think the future holds for us, Dr. Bishop? Would you say, you know, 10 or 15 years, we'll still be doing the open ladder J or the arthroscopic ladder J slowly uh, come along? Will we be doing more allograft bone blocks? Or what do you think we'll be uh, looking at in the future if you had to guess and postulate? If I had to guess and postulate, I would say that one, I think we're going to have some compelling data come out that the young, you know, the young athlete, that subset that um, is really 15, 16, 17, 18, contact athlete, I think we're going to see that their failure rate of arthroscopic bank art is higher than we would like. 
And I think it's going to force us to make some decisions about how we want to um, how we want to address that small subset. Um, and I think that's where the biggest decision making is going to be of what to do. Um, and I I do think that arthroscopic bone block. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of buzz about that. Ivan Wong is doing some you know fabulous uh, studies, and he's technically gifted surgeon, but he's working, and there's work being done to make it more um, more facile for um, the community surgeon or the person who doesn't do as many arthroscopic bone blocks. But I think that that's going to become a part of our um, of our repertoire of what to do. My gut is I don't think arthroscopic ladder J is going to take off. Um, I don't think that's the future, um, but, you know, I could be wrong. But um, I don't think that somebody is better off with an arthroscopic versus an open. And I think it's got a, such a steep learning curve that it's going to be hard for people to get past that. Um, and I think we're going to come up with a lot of new and better forms of fixation. So I think screws will probably go away. Um, and we're going to to come up with some some better ways that um, won't be on your X-ray, won't create problems down the road. Um, but I think it'll be I think it'll be interesting to see. And I think that there'll be more data on the Hill Sacks. I mean, who would have thought when I was training as a resident that we would be where we are right now? Um, so I think the sky's the limit to the advances. And I think we're going to the Hill Sachs is going to get a little more attention um, and be a bigger role um, in the algorithm. But we'll see. You have to interview me in 15 years and see see if I'm right. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that's exciting to think about. And certainly, uh, like you mentioned, uh, so many changes coming so quickly. It's an exciting, exciting field. And certainly, we have a lot, lot to improve on. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Bishop. It's really uh, exciting to hear your insights and we really appreciate it. Thank you again for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here and happy to field any questions that come up after this. Thank you. Dr. Bishop's editorial commentary titled Lower Return to Play After Field Prior Instability Surgery Should the Open Ladder J Be the Gold Standard for Anterior Shoulder Instability is published in the August 2021 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thanks so much for joining us. views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Mm -hmm.